You can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're continuing our trek through the book of 1 Timothy. Um, as Julia mentioned in the announcement video, it was an incredible weekend, all of us together again. And it reminds me of the closing scene of a movie I saw recently um, called Greenland. And Greenland is what I would call a COVID movie. Do you know what I mean? Like not a movie you would otherwise watch unless it was COVID season and you needed an excuse to watch a movie. Okay, it's one of those. I, it's actually pretty good. I give it a 7.3 out of, out of 10. Almost a 7.4, but I went with 7.3. But here, here's the premise. There's an asteroid field, of course. It's always hurtling towards Earth. And the movie is played out is that there's a succession of asteroid impacts in different parts of the globe, and people are running and screaming and trying to survive amidst fiery explosions and those sorts of things. But, but everyone knows that there is one last asteroid coming, and it's an extinction-level event that's about to happen. And the story is, is involves around this family where this man and his family have been called to be a part of the remnant, right? Because he does a special task and they're gathering this little hub of folks who will survive this catastrophe. And of course, what better place to gather a remnant than Greenland, right? And, and, and now, not Graceland, although that's where I would go, okay, if there was a catastrophe, but Greenland. And, and so the, the collision comes, they go into hiding in these underground bunkers, and they don't emerge again until nine months later. And the last scene of the movie is they're coming out, and they're looking around like, who survived, and what's left, and how do we make a go of this, and where do we start over, and how do we rebuild, how do, who's with us, who's not with us? And in a lot of ways, let's be honest, that's the situation the church, not just Four Oaks, but the church globally is facing in this season. As things slowly come back online and people are, 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 are becoming comfortable again gathering, there is a sense of who's with us, who's, who's not, who's left, who's walked away, who survived, who's endured, who's spiritually persevered out there. And the reason that this passage um, is the perfect text at the perfect time for us is because it really tells us fundamentally who and what we are to be about as the people of God, as his church. What are we being called back into? What sort of community are we covenanting together to make again? What are to be our priorities? And so 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16, this is the apex of the book. So everything has been building to this point, and then everything that happens after this kind of flows from it. This is Paul's purpose in writing the text to make these things crystal clear to us. It's where we derive the, the title and theme of this whole series. And we're going to read this passage together, just three short verses. And so if, you're, if you can, if you're willing, if you're able, I invite you to stand. And we're going to read this text together. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have the text behind us. Listen, church, to the word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. 
Let me pray one more time for us. Lord, um, once again, we're asking you to do what, humanly speaking, is impossible. And that is to transform human hearts. Father, we're just, without your spirit, we're just toast. We're, we're, we're not going to do what you've called us to do. We're not going to want to do what you've called us to do. But Lord, through the supernatural work of your spirit, you do supernatural things. Lord, we want to be the church family you've called us to be. And so, Father, give us your grace this morning to hear your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Take your seats. Just like there's COVID movies, there's also COVID family game nights. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's something we've all become reacquainted with during this season. And for the Gilbert family, we love our games old school. So if we want a bizarre game, we play Pass the Pigs. Have you done this one where you roll the... No? Okay, no, right, no, right. We, if we want a controversial game, we'll go Boggle, and that's super controversial. But if we want a suspenseful game, of course... What better way to entertain ourselves than Clue, right? And so there's always those cards, right? There's that packet of cards sitting in that envelope in the middle of the game board. And everyone's wondering who's, who's in there, who done it, how they do it, where did they do it? And then there's the moment of truth, right? Where someone's like, I'm going to venture forth. I think I, can, I think I can solve this mystery, right? It's Colonel Mustard. He did it with the plunger in the bathroom or something like that, okay? You got that one. First service was way slow on that one, okay? <laughs> Who's going to correctly guess the mystery? Now, when, when we think about mystery, that's how we think about it, but it's not the way Paul, what he means by mystery when he mentions the, mis the mystery of godliness here in verse 16. In biblical terms, the word mystery or mysterion it's not something that we are trying to figure out spiritually. Like, you know, Pastor Paul, we're all on this journey spiritually, and we're just trying to figure it out. And we can never know fully for certain, but we're just trying to, each person's got to find their own way. And it's just a mysterious, that's not the biblical sense of mystery, okay? The biblical sense of mystery is this idea that something that was once hidden or was once sort of covered or, or, or was secret is now disclosed. It is now made fully known. And Paul tells us that there has been a mystery wrapped up in the gospel before the foundations of the world that once was not known but is now fully known to the people of God. And he, and he articulates what the essence of this mystery is. Look at verse 16. There, there, there's an order to this, Right? It says that Jesus came in the flesh, and we know he came in the flesh to die for sinners. And it says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. It's what we celebrated last week. He was raised to life as part of the resurrection. He was seen by angels. In other words, he was attended to by angels. We see that in the garden, for example. We, Garden of Gethsemane, he was proclaimed among the nations, right? He, there, was, there, was, there was witnesses, there was proclamation by the apostles to the nation, and the gospel goes forth. They were, Jesus was believed upon. That's why we're here, by the way, because the church was faithful to this mission. In fact, we think this was probably part of a creed or hymn that was sung from the earliest time of the church. You may say, I don't like creeds, Pastor Paul. Well, we're here because of creeds, or humanly speaking. That's why we recite creeds sometimes in our, in our worship. But this was part of the, 
of the rhythm of the life of the church, and then finally taken up in glory. And this idea is that Jesus is now reigning, but yes, there's a promise that he is going to come back for his people one day. And Paul says, this fundamentally is the greatest mystery. And amazingly enough, though, this ministry, this mystery of godliness has been entrusted, wait for it, to the church, to God's people, to us. That yes, it is God who gathers up his people. It is God who saves people, but he uses human means. He uses human praying and human preaching and human teaching and human community groups and fellowship and service, and he brings it all together to gather a people to himself. Now, let me tell you where we're going this morning. And, and, and look, first of all, let, let, let me unpack the title for a second that I gave this message, and it's kind of a play on words, and if it doesn't land on you immediately, let it soak in. Now, you got the clue jokes. I think you can get the sermon title, okay? First service, they were still working on it halfway through, then people started laughing randomly because it came to them. But he, here, here's the title, ready? God's priority for God's people is God's people. God's priority for God's people is God's people. In other words, God's priority for the people he's called to himself is to give us the gift of one another. And that's where we're going to find out the living God dwells. So there's three points this morning, and here we go. We're going to talk about the church as God's possession. Number two, the church as God's family. And then finally, the church as God's masterpiece. So let's look first at this idea of the church being God's possession. Look at verse 15. Paul uses an interesting phrase to refer to the people of God. He calls us the church of the living God. Now that's in the genitive. It, it's in the Greek, it's, it's a possessive noun. It means to belong to, to lay claim to something, to, to own something. Um, in, actu- in, in reality, it, the English doesn't quite get at the impact of this. It literally reads, the living God's church. Almost like when two kids are, are playing and one says, mine, right? That's the strong emphasis of the word. It's shorthand. What is Paul trying to say here? God's people belong to him. We are not our own. We are not spiritual free agents. God has bought us with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. One of the things that Julia mentioned in the announcement videos um, are these pastoral devotionals that we do on weekday mornings. And right now we're working through uh, the book of Exodus as kind of a follow-up to Genesis, which we preached on last year. But one of the themes there that we've hit on is this idea that the Israelites were at one time slaves of Egypt, They were slaves of Pharaoh, and God freed them. He saved them. He brought them out. But not just to sort of set them loose for them to aimlessly wander around the wilderness to ultimately die from thirst and starvation. No, no, no. He he saved them, and now they, while no longer belong to the Egyptians, guess what? They belong to him. He is their new master. He is their loving father. And this is why Paul oftentimes refers to you and I and to himself as what? Slaves, douloi of 
Christ. And this is what Paul is getting at here to convey this idea of ownership. Now, when we hear the word ought, and literally it's translated to do what is proper, to do what is expected, let's be honest, we cringe at the word ought, right? That just signifies duty and drudgery. And it's like when you're, when you're little, you're going to go visit grandma and you have to sit on her couch on Sunday afternoons. And number one, it smells like mothballs. And number two, you're missing the NFL football game, right? That, that's, the, that's our conceptualization of ought. That's what we ought to do. That, that's not biblical obedience. Let me just say that. Obedience is not, listen, things that God makes us do that we really hate inside. That's not biblical obedience. Listen to this. Here's a, here's a good little definition. Biblical obedience is the capacity to exercise our freedom in a way that meets our heart's deepest desires. Now, I want you to hear that again. Biblical obedience is the capacity to exercise our freedom or choice in a way that meets our heart's deepest desires. Let me say it a little more simply. What we want to do is completely congruent with what we ought to do. That's biblical obedience. And, and, there's, and there's three kind of directions we can go with this. I hope maybe this will be helpful for you. Hedonism is simply this. We try to enjoy God's gifts, good gifts, the wrong way. We, we misuse them whether it's money or sexuality, we try to get pleasure and enjoy his gifts, which are good, but in the wrong way, which makes them a bad thing. Legalism, on the other hand, is when we aren't able to enjoy God's gifts the right way. In other words, we're doing the right things. Come on, Pastor Paul, I pray and I read my Bible and I'm here at church, aren't I? Get along with it, right? But that so easily devolves into legalism when our heart is not matching our behavior. But there's a third option for us, and this is the one Paul points us to here. It's the option of joy. We enjoy God's gifts the right way. You see, God wants to give us joy. He wants to give us life, abundant life, spiritual life. And we have to ask, where? Where does that happen. And the way Paul points us here is this idea that we belong to the living God. Living by definition involves life. If we want to know where joy is, it's where God is. He is the living God. And we see this theme of the living God all over the Bible. Here's a couple of examples. First Thessalonians 1 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Psalm 84, 2. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the, what? Living God. And whenever we see this term in Scripture, it, it points us to the reality that our hearts are hardwired for worship. We, it's not simply Christians who worship. All human beings worship. All of us are designed with that capacity. We're created for that capacity. We, we're yearning for something bigger, more transcendent, something that's beyond us. And, and we look around and we're looking for life 
we're looking for something to, to fill that void, and we gravitate to all the things life has to offer, right? We gravitate to our family, which is a good thing. Family's a good thing. We gravitate to our children. Children are a good thing. We gravitate to sexuality. Sexuality is a good thing. Hobbies, travel, money, vacations, all of those are good things, but yet they were never, to design, they were never designed to do what only God can do in Jesus Christ. And first thing Paul tells us, people of God, if you want to find life, you find it in me. And my life is manifested where? With each other. In the people of God. And when we hear about the, the rampant crises that flow across our country right now, and the world really on the heels of this season, and not just financial, but mental health, and emotional struggles, relational struggles, so much of this is rooted in the idea and in the reality that people have not been able together. They have not been able to, to, to come together to be the people of God. And this, you even see this on a non-Christian level, right? Being cut off community is really being cut off from the image of God itself. And so when Paul says before, he, yes, all my gifts in the appropriate place. But let me tell you where life is. Life is right here. Life is with the family of God, which brings us to our second point. Let's look, let's, let's look there. Paul says, uses an interesting phrase when he says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Let me just give it a, a little historical aside for a second. Remember, Paul had been let out of prison and he was writing to Timothy to say, Timothy, it's my intention, if I can, to get to Ephesus. But if I'm delayed, then here's the instructions I'm giving you. Do you know that we most likely, Paul never made it to Ephesus? And we, we think that he probably wintered in Crete with Titus. And then shortly thereafter, he was imprisoned, this time for the second time, on his way to martyrdom. And it was then that he wrote 2 Timothy. And so how absolutely gracious and good of God, right, to preserve for us this book but, and for Timothy, because indeed, right, Paul was delayed. And these were the instructions given to order the household of God. Now, this word oikos or household, it, in the Greek it's oikos, it can refer to a physical building or it can refer to like a people. And the reason we think it refers to people here is, number one, there were no church buildings when Paul was writing. They couldn't worship with the Jews in the synagogue. There were no public houses of worship. And so guess where they worshiped? They worshiped in homes. They worshiped in households. They worshiped um, in people who in the church had means at that time and the capacity to, to bring in larger groups of people. That's where they went. And so we think undoubtedly Paul is referring here to people. Now, when we think of people or families, in our 21st century context, we typically think about primarily the people that live under our roof, right? The nuclear family, whoever that happens to be. But households were much more extensive in the New Testament, right? You had a whole clan of people that might be living on a compound, right? 
and, and a compound like, you know, kind of like the Godfather lives with his plan on a compound. So that's the church without the violent crime part. You get what I'm saying, right? And when we think about what a healthy family looks like, listen, you, you could answer that in your sleep, right? Even if you're not in one or didn't come from one, you, you can answer that. Well, well, Pastor Paul, I think a healthy family loves each other, serves each other. There's got to be some leadership in the home. There needs to be some instruction. Um, there needs to be some order. There needs to be fun. needs to be recreation. I think all of us are in tune, right, with a picture of what a healthy family might look like. <clears throat> but there's one characteristic of family that I would say assumes all of those things, but yet transcends them at the same time. In fact, without this, I don't think you, properly speaking, have a family. And it's simply this, togetherness. Togetherness. You know, this weekend, our oldest daughter and her husband from D.C. were here. And um, my dad as well celebrating, we're celebrating his 80th birthday. And we have to ask, are we not a family when we're not together? And of course the answer is no. Of course we're a family when we're not together. When we're not together, we can Zoom. We can FaceTime. We can do all those sorts of things. But I want you to think about this for a second. If you had the capacity, if we had the capacity to be together at different points, but simply opted out, right? Virtual relationships, virtual family. I would say not only are we missing out on one of the most important expressions, okay, of family, which is togetherness, but you could legitimately ask, are we really a family? I mean, functionally. Think about this for a second. Think about your neighbors who live on your street. And you may refer to someone as your neighbor who lives in your neighborhood. But you know, if you never see that person, talk to them, serve them, invite them over, then, you, then they are not your neighbor in the biblical sense, right? Because the scripture says, love your neighbor. And that involves acts of service and care. And guess what? Being together. And it's the same thing with the family of God, right? Let me just say something. We'll have to talk about this at some point. So I think this is the right text to do it. Just know I'm incredibly thankful for virtual church. And let me tell you the reasons why. It has allowed us blessings that no other generation has ever had. It has been vitally important this season for those who have health reasons for not being able to gather, for those who can't gather. Maybe there's an emergency. Maybe someone is sick. Maybe there's travel. Maybe someone is in a nursing home. I could go on and on. You know the list. And I want to validate, I praise God for that technology that allows us to do that, allows even some of you who are watching right now to do this. However, as a theological category, let me just say this. I think online church is at best a reluctant accommodation. You see, if we have the capacity to gather together personally, in person, but don't, and and I'm saying for, as a valid reason, all the things that I just mentioned, right? So no emails on those things, right? We, you got that. I don't hear what I'm not saying. 
But if we have the capacity to gather together personally, but don't because of, let's be honest, laziness, comfort, convenience, Pastor Paul, it's just so much easier to be in my pajamas and I'm a great multitasker. I can check my email and listen to the sermon at the same time, right? Some of you are doing that right now, so repent, okay? <laughs> Pastor Paul, come on. I, it's just all these COVID stuff, I just freaks me out. I, I'm not going to do it. It's just too much trouble, too much hassle. It's too much of a mess. Guys, let me just say, when, when that's our initial impulse, we are being discipled by something else besides the Bible. We, we're being discipled by culture, by individualism, by misplaced notions, I think, of, of, of what we're entitled to and not entitled to. Guys, if we knew the half of what the New Testament church went through together, we would, I mean, some of us would tap out. We'd be like, no, thank you. I'm not going in those dusky tombs, okay? I'm not crawling under the sewers under Rome. I'm not doing any of that. I've got to wear my Sunday best. You, you get the idea, right? What Paul's getting at with this idea of the metaphor of the family is that biblical Christianity is not a privatized individual spirituality. I mean, it is, it, it is personal, and it's not less than individual, but guess what, church? It is so much more. It is the communal shared life together. Guys, let me just ask you, what, what might need to change in your life this coming season as we're all coming back online, so to speak? To say, you know what? This is my family. And families love each other. They get together. They serve. They, they help each other. They walk alongside of each other. Because as Paul is going to tell us here, God does something beautiful in the church. Beautiful with his bride. And I know some of us have some significant personal hurdles to get over when it comes to this idea of the church being the family. The church has hurt you. The church has failed you. The church has, has maybe you've suffered abuse in the church. Maybe you've had scars, physical and psychological and spiritual, because of your experiences in the church. And you've heard me say these things before, but I'm going to quote some of my mentors who said these things previously, but I think they are profoundly fundamentally true. I stake my life on them. If Jesus loved the church enough to die for her, you and I can love her enough to be patient with her. If, remember this, Jesus did not come and die for his bride because we were wearing our pure white wedding gown. Is that why Jesus came and died for us? Jesus came and died for us because our gowns were soiled. They were blackened. They were torn and tattered. Let's be very careful, church. We don't hold the people of God to a higher standard than God himself does. Guys, we're going to need a ton of grace for each other over this coming season. So let's start this morning by exercising and praying for grace to show each other grace as we run after the family of God. Last point, we're done. Paul thirdly speaks of the church as God's masterpiece. If you go back to the text, look at verse 15. Paul uses two interesting terms to talk about the household of God or the church of the living God. Verse 15, he, he refers to, these, to the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, those are architectural terms. 
And if you're any sort of builder or handy at all, you know a pillar is something that holds something up and a buttress is something that stabilizes at the base or the foundation. And when Paul uses these architectural terms, there's an immediate contemporary application that they're going to think of, right? Because these folks lived in Ephesus and they housed one of the seven ancient wonders of the world that was highly operative and functional at that time, which was, of course, the Temple of Artemis. People flocked there from everywhere to worship. If you've ever been to New York City and been to the Empire State Building, and you know people from all over the world flock to that. But it's not just the, the, the building, right? It's all the souvenirs and artifacts and get your picture taken in front of this virtual picture. And that, that was all of this that was going on with the Temple of Artemis. We, we can't conceive of how in the world they built something like this at the time. It was a massive structure, longer than a football field, 127 columns. It was a masterpiece. People all over the world came to see it. Today, you can go to Ephesus. There's uh, maybe one or two pillars lying on the ground. Paul says God is building a masterpiece, a house, a family, which is the church, the body of Christ. That's his great spiritual work. And that the job, now listen to this, the job of the church, Paul says, when it comes to the truth, is to hold it up and to hold it firm. Hold it firm, hold it high. Now, if you're theologically paying attention here, this should raise a question for you, right? Which is simply this, is, is, the, is truth the foundation for the church or is the church the foundation for the truth? You see, Roman Catholicism says that it's the church ultimately that is the arbiter of truth. It is the church that decides what the scriptures mean by its confessions and its formulations. And the problem with this, right, is that the church is full of whom? People like us. And we are fickle. And if it's up to us to determine what is true and not true, then you know this to be the case. We can make the Bible say just about anything we want it to say. Every wind of cultural persuasion that blows through, we're going to be tempted to make truth a constant moving target. So, so that's not what Paul means. See, what Paul means when he calls a church the, the pillar and buttress of the truth, he's referring to the church's mission. Okay? He's talking about the function of the church. He's, he's speaking of the job description of the church, that it's the church's job to lift up the truth. It's the, per, it's the church's job to solidify the spiritual lives of its people with the truth. That, that's category number one in everything we do here, whether it's community group, preaching on Sunday mornings, student ministries, children's ministries, we want to lead people to a more thorough, in-depth understanding and embrace of the Word of God. We don't want to hide it under a bushel. Guys, let me just say, one of the great epidemics that's, that's flowing across North America and the West at large related to the church is what I would kind of call not outright apostasy, although there is that, it's just that, you know, Pastor Paul, we're a little embarrassed by the truth. 
I mean, you and I, we both know what Scripture teaches about gender and sexuality and marriage and a whole host of other things, but let's just, let's just, can you just like keep that on the DL right now, right? Let's talk about something that unites and makes people happy and, you, and brings us together. Because it's one of the reasons why in our Welcome to the Family Membership classes, we try as much as we humanly can at the time we have to tell you exactly what we think God's Word says we are, to, we are called to do and believe. What our statement of faith is, what our confession is, what, what, where we theologically hang our hat. It doesn't do you or anyone else any good to get six months into this process and say, hmm, I didn't know you believed that. that, 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 that that's a concern. No, no, and, and plus, it vi- but most of all, guys, we don't do that because it doesn't honor God. God said, this is all my truth. And whether any particular culture at any particular time finds some of God's word palpable more than others is completely irrelevant to what's true. And Paul says the job description of the church is to hold the truth high. The, the, the job of the, chur- the church is to proclaim the truth, leave the results to God. The job of the church is to buttress people's spiritual lives by a deeper study of an experience of the Word of God. See, the church and the truth need each other. And let me, let me t- here's a quote from John Stott. It explains this. I think it's really good. So then, the church and truth need each other. Listen to this. The church depends upon the truth for its existence. We're not here apart from the truth and the Word. And Jesus established that. The truth depends upon the church for its defense and proclamation. See, they go hand in hand, and that order is vitally, vitally important. Not just corporately, but personally. And let me illustrate what I mean by that. Some of you are are pretty new here, and you've probably never thought about what kind of physical building you're walking into this morning. But this actually used to be a food lion. And the highest ceiling in this place was about the bottom of where the balcony is this morning, okay? You didn't know it, but you're sitting in the middle of an architectural wonder, okay? Not the Temple of Artemis, but the contractors, John Stewart, Peter Brown Construction, they had to literally not only take the roof off a building, but build a building within a building. So look around. There's cinder block walls. We're a building within a building that are buttressing, okay, this roof above us. And then you see these supports. That one used to be in the food section, that one in the frozen food, and that one in the toiletries, right? Maybe that's why that area always smells back there. But you get what I'm saying, right? All of it is sort of in the backdrop and incredibly necessary. But you don't really think about it, right, until you pull a piece out of the puzzle, unless you started playing Jenga with this place. And then very quickly, right, you would find out how much you needed the buttress and the pillars that this building provides. Guys, our spiritual walks as believers are so much like that. See, the church is the foundation and support which is crucially needed for your spiritual life. You see... There is a world of difference in walking through a crisis or suffering or even personal sin and you have absolutely no support structure around you. There is no buttress. There is no pillar. You are just sort of hanging out there in the wind. 
But when you're walking through those things and you have the family of God who are supporting, encouraging, praying, yes, maybe even correcting, walking, advising, praying, counseling, we find out oh so quickly how vital they are. Because let me just tell you as we close this morning, my prayer for us this season as a church family. I pray that this season, all of us, all of us, me, see, it's very easy as a pastor to exempt yourself, right? Or the staff, well, we're here all the time. This is a spiritual thing I'm about to say. What needs to change in your life? What needs to change in my life for the church to become more like a home and less like a hobby? What's the difference? Well, I love hobbies. You have hobbies. We have hobbies. We all have hobbies. Hobbies are niceties, but make no mistake, they're peripheral, right? You fit them in if and when you can. Sometimes they're a diversion. Sometimes there's an ebb and flow about them. They're, they're dictated upon needs and circumstances and resources, but home, that's a whole other story. Not to go Hallmark Channel on you, right? Home is where what? Where your heart is. Home is where the family is. Home's your anchor. Home is your support. Home is your life. Jesus said, I came to purchase, to die for my forever family. You've heard me say this before in heaven, we're not going to be married or given in marriage. There's not going to be the biological family as we know it. It won't mean we don't recognize each other. I don't mean that. But these things that typify family, human relationships are going to be no more. What we're going to have is one another as the body of Christ connected to Jesus Christ, who is our head. That's our home. That's what Jesus came to create. And he says, in this life, even though you're going to mess it up, even though it's going to be dysfunctional, even though it's going to be full of sin and mistakes and conflict, I want you to live out by the power of the gospel this vision of God's forever family. And here it is. Because I think the Apostle John, who was the last living apostle, understood this so well. And, and, this, and this book is going to be the book we study at our sunset services. But let me just read you two of the opening verses, because I think this gets to the heart of what Paul's talking about here. John writes this, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. See, for John, it wasn't simply enough that people knew Jesus Christ. He said, if you know Jesus Christ, you'll know his family. You'll know his brothers and sisters. And the reason I'm writing to you is so that my joy may be complete, that we are together. See, church, joy is found in the family of God. Joy is found in the family of God because guess what? That's where life is. That's where God is. And I pray that God will lead us supernaturally by his spirit to be his bride with all her flaws, purchased but brought together to be his forever family and that we can live that out here on earth. 
a people bought by the precious blood of Christ who now belong to him.